Hello everyone, you're listening to Night's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. Before I get into the topic of this episode's podcast, I have a special announcement to make. Night's History Cast is officially on all, that's right, all major podcast platforms. We're talking Apple Podcasts, we're talking Spotify, we're talking Google Podcasts, we're talking Amazon Music, we're talking Podbean, we're talking Samsung, Samsung's podcast app, um, iHeartRadio. I mean, every possibly every destination you could get podcasts, we're there. And this is very special to me because this is something that I've been working on very hard, uh, tirelessly to get this done. Um, ever since I've had this job in October, this goal was always in my mind. It was just a matter of time when it was going to get manifested. And finally it has been. So this is mainly the reason why there has been no episode, um, of night history cast since February of, uh, since February 28, I believe. 27 basically no episodes in march which (laughs) fun little side note kind of sucks for me um because i i was keeping a streak going i'm like okay i'm getting an episode every month which you know it isn't really impressive honestly because i'm producing so many episodes but yeah the streak's broken technically but uh it's a trade-off and it's a it's a worthy one because in that time is when i was able to really coordinate um again shout out to amira and jesse and even dr french for, you know, and Dr. Larson, everyone involved in getting this officially done. This was not just a solo effort. This was a team effort in getting this done. I really do appreciate it. And so in the month of March, not only was I recording a lot of episodes because there were a lot of events happening in March from the UCF Symposium, the um, Operation Peter Pan, Operacion Pedro Pan event, uh, the Poly Lecture, um, this episode, which is the John T. Washington Lecture, uh, a, lot, a lot of events happened in March, though. So I was recording while also coordinating how to do this relaunch and getting that whole process set up technically, like in the tech, in the technicalities, but also in like, OK, how do I want to announce this? How do I want to promote this? How do I want to grow the show now that we are officially on the, the places that people primarily listen to podcasts on? Stars is still an option. So if you like stars, uh, stars is still there. I will still publish the episodes on stars. It's the archive place for any UCF project, so it will always be there no matter what happens to uh, Night's History Cast on these other major streaming services, on these other major podcast platforms. So Stars is still there, but yes, uh, Night's History Cast is on Apple, Google, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcast, Night's History Cast is there. So please do me a huge favor and support this show. By going to wherever you listen to your podcast and music, so if it's Apple, if it's Spotify, whatever, go there, search up Knights History Cast, Knights Space History Cast, subscribe to the show, follow the show, click the little bell to never miss an episode, and I would greatly appreciate that. You know that that already means a lot to me. And of course, if you are a constant listener, I do my best to provide interesting historical topics, historical um, conversations, showing to the the public how important history is truly because i feel like if you ask a normal person they're like hey do you think history is important they'll be like yeah uh, but th- do they really understand what it means and you know picking the brains of the scholars of the people that have devoted their life to this profession you could really understand the importance not just like oh yeah i think it is and whatever and not really think about it again no 
So, yeah, big news. So, please, wherever you get your podcast, subscribe, follow, hit the bell, and stay tuned to Night's History Cast as well. Now that I'm just giving the promos out, I might as well say this too. Also, go follow the UCF Twitter account. That's at UCF underscore history. Follow my Twitter account at Seb underscore Garcia underscore underscore. Um, as there, I constantly post updates, uh, little previews of the show. Uh, like getting the, some of the most interesting sound bites and showing them out to promote interest in the episode. Um, I'm also on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, uh, and these those three handles are all the same. It's Seb Garcia dot history. Um, also, go check out the YouTube channel of the History Department, which is just UCF Department of History. Just follow us on social so you can stay connected with us and never miss a beat of this show. So now on to the topic of this episode. This episode of Night's History Cast, I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Mwinwita Chacha and Dr. Jonathan Powell. So it was a three-person podcast, which already adds a layer of uniqueness to this episode. And on top of that, more importantly, it's not just a numbers game, but Dr. Chacha and Dr. Powell have known each other and have worked together. They have researched together um, over the past several years now. And seeing that dynamic unfold throughout the podcast conversation definitely enhanced the overall experience and the overall conversation we all had. Another layer of uniqueness to this episode and the main focal point of this episode is that it's centered on the John T. Washington Annual Lecture Series, which is hosted every year by the Department of History's Africana Studies Program. John T. Washington was one of UCF's first black faculty members um, for the Department of Sociology. He was an associate professor. And if you are a student or a member of the UCF community, you very you are very much aware of his presence around campus. He has a building name after him, a, mur- a beautiful mural outside um, in honor of his work and his legacy. So this lecture series is just another way to celebrate his life and his work. This year's John T. Washington annual lecture series featured Dr. Minwita Chacha, who is an assistant professor in international relations at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. His research examines the politics of regional integration and the consequences of political and economic interdependence on domestic security and conflict. More specifically, his lecture was centered on recent trends in regional cooperation in Africa by identifying the uniqueness of these trends and placing them in historical context. And of course, since this podcast is based off his lecture, the podcast is as well about regional cooperation in Africa. Dr. Powell is an associate professor in the School of Politics, Security, and International Affairs here at the University of Central Florida, as they do in their in their own research and in their own professional work and experience. Dr. Powell complements well with Dr. Chacha's work and vice versa, and thus he adds his contributions and his perspective on the variety of themes and topics we talked about in this main conversation that centered on Dr. Chacha's lecture. So enough of me talking, enjoy the podcast and cue that music. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Muita Chacha and Dr. Jonathan Powell for this episode of Knight's History Cast. 
Dr. Powell is an associate professor in the School of Politics, Security, and International Affairs here at the University of Central Florida. He specializes in international relations and comparative politics. He is especially interested in civil-military relations with regional interests in Africa and the Middle East. Dr. Chacha is an assistant professor in international relations at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. His research examines the politics of regional integration and the consequences of political and economic interdependence on domestic security and conflict. He was also the keynote speaker at this year's John T. Washington Annual Lecture Series hosted by the UCF Department of History's Africana Studies Program. So that will be the main focal point of today's podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Happy to have you both on the podcast. How are you feeling today? Very good. Very good. Thank you so much. Yeah, great to be here. Awesome. So as I just mentioned, we'll be mainly talking about the lecture presentation that Dr. Chacha gave for this year's Nanting Washington Annual Lecture Series, but we'll also be transitioning in and out from that main conversation to the work you've both done and collaborated on in in several journal articles. So sounds good? Sounds good. Yeah. All right. So my first question is basically an icebreaker question. Explain to us, the audience, how both of you have met and how your individual professional work and research complements each other. Okay. Uh, who should start? John? You start with how we met, and then I'll get into the okay. compliment okay. stuff. Okay. Uh, so we met in Kazakhstan. Uh, we were both uh, assistant professors at this new university in the capital of Kazakhstan, Astana. And this was back in 2012. I was there for another seven years. John left after two years um, to come to UCF. Uh, but the, the interesting thing is that we had actually met prior to that, uh, but we were not, uh, we, we didn't converse or anything. And that was, if I'm not mistaken, back in 2008 wow. at this regional conference in North Virginia. I can't remember the city. Or the, the town, but we we were presenting papers. Uh, I was, you know, both of us were. At the, I think at the time we were both graduate students, and um, yes, and that's you know that's that was a f- the first encounter. And then next thing you know, a few years after we, da- we finished our PhDs, we meet in in Kazakhstan and we begin to collaborate. I think I got it. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. And in regards to collaboration and how we complement each other. At the time that I was moving to Kazakhstan, I had been coming off a few projects specifically on military coups in the world, first trying to document when and where they occurred, then moving towards trying to explain why they occur, and then trying to move into what the consequences of these things are, particularly as it relates to things like democratization. And in my research, one of the things that became very clear was very important that not a lot of whole, not a whole lot of people were talking about was the role of the international community in either responding to coups or trying to put the country back on the right track after militaries intervened in politics. So for me, I do research in international relations, but I hadn't really gotten gotten into international institutions and international organizations and things like that. Um, I had been trained more traditionally in terms of states interacting with other states. And then I had gotten really interested in these domestic political outcomes of coups. Um, So when I went to Kazakhstan, I was in a position where I was really curious about what was going on internationally, but didn't really have strong chops in that regard. And I met Muita, and he was specifically a specialist in international institutions. So long story short, you know, I came at it from trying to study and understand what's going on with military coups in the world. And Muita was a specialist in international institutions and international integration. So it was kind of a natural marriage in terms of trying to get together and study how do and how does the international community as a whole influence these dynamics related to military coups. 
Dr. Chacha, you opened your, your lecture by stating that you believe the question of evaluating regional cooperation in Africa, which is essentially the, the main thesis of your lecture, mm -hmm. should be theoretically grounded on the background conditions of Africa. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to our listeners what do you mean by that? And more importantly, why is this approach significant? What do I mean by that? Uh, by that, I mean looking at some of the uh, factors that uh, or characteristics of African politics, African states' political history and experience, and how those or that background shapes the states in Africa's pursuit of cooperation with other states in, in, in Africa. The background conditions that I highlighted yesterday, or two days ago, sorry, uh, had to do with um, these consequences of colonial rule and that what that has meant for pursuing different sort of cooperation initiatives that involve a strong role of the state and also that push these countries to pursue cooperation aimed at um, addressing their own shared challenges, their own shared concerns. Why do I think this is important? I think this is important because for a lot of research in the social sciences, we are mainly looking at arguments, theories that seem to have been built around the European experience. Uh, whether this is implicit or explicit, we see that uh, you know some of these major arguments in whether it's political science, international relations, the reference point is always you know how these arguments worked to explain certain aspects of Western politics. But then is that does that do justice to to the African political system? And I I don't think so. I, I think I think there are things we're overlooking. Uh, and if we if we ground our arguments on the, the features of African politics, and perhaps we, we, we can get better explanations on, on what's happening in, in, in Africa. Uh, in, the same, in the same way, you can uh, make the argument that if you build theories based on the experiences of, say, East Asia, uh, the Middle East, then the arguments you're getting are more plausible when it comes to explaining the politics of, of those parts of the world. One of the most fascinating elements of your lecture was how you contextualized your research especially in the beginning of the lecture, with the history mm -hmm. of Africa roughly since the mid-20th century, around the Cold War when it started. Can you explain to us the origins of regionalism in Africa and why was it so sought after? So the origins, uh, I mean, you can think of two origins, uh, which is odd, but the initial origin is actually during the colonial period when, uh, for one reason or another, many of the colonial powers essentially established different trade uh, arrangements involving the colonies in, in now independent states. You had the uh, Southern African uh, Customs Union, which is uh, the oldest customs union in the world, which was set up in 1910. You had the East African Community, which initially was set up in 1927 as a trade uh, a agreement, as a customs union as, as well. And, you know, the French did the same with, with several of their colonies in West Africa. But then all these arrangements begin to uh, take their modern shape following independence in the 60s. And so bodies such as the East African community uh, are set up now by independent states, by the three independent states uh, that had been members throughout this time. And when they were setting them up in, in the 60s, the aim here was to update uh, the cooperation, given that they are now independent states, and to uh, foster this cooperation that aimed to enhance their independence and also aimed to uh, reduce their dependence on uh, the former colonial power, in this case, the United Kingdom. And so that, that, that's, you know, that, those would be the origins where the, the motivation, particularly after independence, was for these countries to reduce their dependence on the former colonial powers, to enhance development within the region, 
and to ensure that they can you know pursue the kind of development that would benefit and ensure that they industrialize fast of course this is not what happened because many of these arrangements end up existing fostering cooperation fostering cordial ties between the states but when it came to their impact on this goal of development it was quite minimal and so in the in the 80s into the 90s we see this rethink uh, i believe this is something that i highlighted in the lecture but you see this rethink of what exactly can these organizations do for for african states and so now is where we are beginning to see some impact of these organizations in terms of enhancing interregional trade but also in terms of building capacity of these countries to negotiate with external actors when it comes to trade agreements with say countries like uh, the us or trade agreements with organizations such as the european union I'll start um, with you, Dr. Powell, for this question, and then Dr. Chacha, you could answer afterwards. How did these regional economic ties in the in this initial period of starting regionalism in Africa, how did that influence the the democratic process of those countries that participated in regional cooperation? So in the early years of post-independence Africa, there wasn't much of a democratic experience to speak of. There was a lot of excitement about the potential for independent and democratic rule at independence. But unfortunately, almost immediately after, we start to see the rise of military coups in Africa and then the establishment of really military strongman rule, which really persisted in much of the continent for decades. Would you want to comment more on the regionalism aspect of that? Yes. Uh, <coughs> yeah. I mean, the, 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 in, in that period, the emphasis for many of these organizations was uh, non-interference. And so... Non-interference initially meant non-interference by external actors, so the former colonial powers. But then that was stretched to mean non-interference by even those actors in Africa, so other member states interfering in the affairs of other member states. If you look at the Organization for African Unity, one of the things that it was emphasizing was, you know, you have independent states and we are here to ensure their sovereignty and non-interference in the affairs of, you know, in the internal affairs. And so, you know, Coups would happen. The organization really didn't do much about it, and you see the same thing happening within regional organizations. In fact, many regional organizations at the time didn't have any. Some of the mechanisms that I, I highlighted briefly in the lecture, such as trying to ensure that human rights are respected by by governments. So these mechanisms were not part of the cooperation arrangement. The cooperation there was for sovereign states. The idea was that we are cooperating as independent states, where none of us is interfering with the others' internal affairs. And, and so this sort of marks is a, is a characteristic of, you know, the extent to which international organizations or regional organizations in Africa uh, affected or did not affect uh, democracy or domestic politics of, of their member states. You touched on it in your first answer a little bit about the transition from the Cold War mindset of regionalism in Africa to a little bit now in the 90s where there was a shift in the thinking. So my next question is about that. So how did regional cooperation in Africa shifted in the post-Cold War era once the world wasn't so heavily dominated by the U.S. bloc and the Soviet bloc? Yeah, one of the things that happened was as a consequence of not just the end of the Cold War, but also the debt crisis in many parts of the developing world. There were these uh, changes in thinking globally of how to integrate into the global economy. So how do you ensure that your domestic market, uh, your domestic economy actually is benefiting or is in line with what is happening globally. And so this is where we see, you know, both the conditions that are attached to foreign assistance, but also these governments, African governments, the realization that perhaps some of their approaches to economic cooperation regionally were not working. 
because they are not in line with the dominant thinking of of economic development, economic uh, policy making. And so you start seeing this shift in the 90s. And this builds up into many of these regional organizations beginning to see the importance of actually living up to their agreements. So if you say concluded a free trade agreement, perhaps for you to enhance trade between your member states would require you to live up to whatever you stated as the aims of, of that agreement. So this is where you see this 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 shift in, in thinking, this shift in approaching uh, cooperation. But also going back to, to the Cold War, in the end of the Cold War and what that meant for regional cooperation, you also see this realization that perhaps these major powers, now that they are not, at, at least at the time, now that they are not uh, uh, competing with each other, a government in, say, Africa may not have uh, uh, a patron if that's the term to use here, that would just let them do whatever they, they're, they're doing to their citizens, right? Uh, and so realizing that, that realization shifts this notion that you can just go, go around abusing your citizens, right? And so we start seeing the African unions later on being established uh, and also that organization embedding, you could say, this, this, this realization, this understanding that perhaps we need to enhance uh, democracy in the region, democracy having been spreading in, in many parts of Africa. And no government is going to, to stand there expecting that, say, you know, the US or some country in Europe will, will side with them when they go around abusing the citizens. And so you see, you see this thinking in, in economic matters where policymaking has uh, changed. Uh, to reflect this new understanding of, of economic liberalism, but also you see this change in terms of how these organizations want to be addressing some of these challenges that during the Cold War they, they were either unwilling to do because they had support from external actors or they were unable to do because these states didn't have the motivation to embed these expectations in those organizations. And this is where there's also a shift in these organizations being more people focused, right? More people centered. Exactly, exactly. And you know, you could you could you could put it in terms of how globally there's also this rethink in what development should look like. Should it purely be economic issues, or should we also be thinking about what people want and how people are affected by some of the decisions their governments are making, right? And so we see that uh, in some of the statements that start coming out of the Organization for African Unity after the nineties what the African Union begins to stand for. Uh, we also see that in some of, the, some of these regional organizations in the reforms that they embark on, where they begin to emphasize this language that perhaps we need to be people-centered. Perhaps we need to uh, ensure that people participate. People are aware of these organizations. People feel ownership of what these organizations are doing. And so that, in a way, is a consequence of the end of the Cold War. Staying in that post-Cold War era of the 90s, there was an attitude from leaders such as Robert Mungabe that not only are these regional organization ties concerned with continental cooperation, but also democracy promotion and um, explicitly being anti-coup. So why, why was making this statement of being explicitly anti-coup so important for these organizations that, as you just said, historically up until the 90s were mainly concerned with just the economics. You didn't take that, yeah? Yeah, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll start with that one. So during the Cold War, if you did a military coup, though this might be seen as kind of an aberration of politics and something that we would otherwise want to avoid for any number of reasons, you effectively knew that you would be able to get away with it domestically so long as you could, main, so long as you could overtake a capital and establish yourself in power. You knew that you would have one foreign patron or another that would be willing to support you. So there was a lot of reduction in the risk of actually trying to seize power. And regardless of what your actual performance in power would be, so long as you were doing 
not necessarily the bidding, but doing things in things in line with what a foreign patron such as the United States or the Soviet Union might want you to do, you would be able to survive politically. And in some cases, you might actually be able to get a foreign power coming in and directly support you militarily if someone was attempting to overthrow you. With the close of the Cold War and the end of the superpower rivalry, we saw those foreign patrons start to leave. And this naturally created an atmosphere where there was going to have to be more accountability domestically. It would be more difficult for folks like soldiers to be able to seize power and expect to be supported either domestically or internationally. So we do see, and not just in Africa, but globally, with the end of the superpower rivalry, we start to see a shift towards impunity for coup leaders, towards not just you know accepting the fact that this is an aberration, but direct moves towards trying to prevent these things from occurring at all. And where they do occur, try to reverse them and do things like reinstate leaders who had been removed in coups. And at, at the precise end of the Cold War. This was probably much more dramatically illustrated in Latin America, where Latin America, their coup history was just as bad, if not worse, than what happened in Sub-Saharan Africa after Sub-Saharan African countries started getting independence. But this effectively stopped with the end of the Cold War. And one of the reasons we think is when you do see where coups did occur after the Cold War had ended, the punishments were quite severe. So Haiti is a really notorious example in the early 1990s where Jean-Bertrand Aristide was overthrown. And they were immediately sanctioned by the international community. And not just the international community, you know, like in general, but it was effectively an entire embargo against their economy and their military. So the regime was not going to be able to survive. They managed to survive for a few years, but eventually it got to the point where President Clinton even threatened to send in something like 20,000 Marines to get Aristide reinstated into power. So eventually the leader of the junta ended up fleeing. In the late 1990s, we saw another very short-lived coup, much shorter-lived coup in Ecuador in January 2000 where President Mahuad was overthrown by an army colonel. And after the army colonel had seized power, the folks who were above him in the chain of command in the armed forces specifically went to him and said, what are you doing? You're going to turn us into Cuba, directly referring to the punishment that would probably be visited on them by the international community. So the military quickly retreated to the barracks. And another example in Latin America, in Paraguay, actually a few years before that, there was a feud between the army chief of staff and the president of the country. The president of the country attempted to dismiss the army chief of staff. He refused to accept that and effectively threatened to seize power. But ultimately, he didn't and reportedly specifically said that because of the new international norm against coups, the era of the Latin American coup is actually over. And this is someone who otherwise was very clear that he probably would have led a coup against the government. But he knew that if he did, the game had changed and what he might have been able to get away with 10, 15 or 20 years earlier, he now knew that it was an impossibility. And we see this start to develop in Africa um, a bit later in the 1990s. And one of the cases that Muita had mentioned during his talk was this very important intervention in Sierra Leone in 1990, well, started with a coup in 1997 where the government was overthrown and eventually a peacekeeping contingent that was already in the country dealing with the civil war ultimately forced out this coup-born regime and allowed the elected leader to come back into power. And that effectively set up kind of, you know, new expectations for how the international community would deal with these things, where there was much more of a, I wouldn't necessarily say zero tolerance norm towards military coups, but it was definitely the case that for anyone that was interested in potentially leading a coup knew that they needed to tread carefully and they would only be able to really succeed in a very special select type of case where the international community, for one reason or another, might be especially likely to acquiesce to what it is that they're doing. 
Right, right. So you you have I think if you if you look at the statement that uh, I referred to in the in the in the lecture uh, in in the 1997 OAU summit. I mean think of that as in a way marking this new thinking because within that organization within the OAU there had already been talks on how to go about coups, how to go about this threat to democracy. And these were being, you know, uh, going around uh, among the, um, the, the the bureaucrats within that organization, in the secretariat. But what we see from, from Mugabe's statement is marking this thinking, because he was the host of this summit. Uh, he was uh, a president uh, of, of, of his country and saying these things, uh, that we are moving into a direction where African states won't accept governments that come to power by such means. Then that is, you know, an, a strong endorsement that perhaps these organizations in Africa, such as the OAU, should do more when it comes to coups, right? And we see following that summit, it triggers the, the new African Union to actually have a policy against coups. You also see bodies such as the, the Southern African Development Community and the Economic Community of West African States, organizations that now embed anti-coup norms in their approach to ensuring that these activities don't take place and democracy actually begins to be, um, you could say, uh, strengthened in, in many of their member states. Dr. Chacha, explain to our listeners the recent trend of advancing economic cooperation by using the regional organizations as building blocks for continental-level cooperation. So uh, what we are hearing from the African Union uh, is looking at or approaching sub-regional organizations such as the ECOWAS or the East African Community, as building blocks for a continental economic organization or a, a continental single market. And the idea here is that these different blocks, these different regional organizations, are already embarking on economic operation. And so for the African Union, one approach could have been to just say that these organizations need to cease to exist and we have one single African organization, but that won't be possible because for many of the countries that are already in those in those sub-regional organizations, you know, they have strong ties with each other. Uh, they have a history of cooperation with each other. And these organizations are not going to go away. And so how about seeing these sub-regional organizations as starting the process of uh, lowering tariffs, of developing infrastructure that facilitates uh, economic exchanges between countries, and then using them as the one step before a whole African trade agreement. And we see we, we see that happening to the extent that we see that some regional organizations within Africa have actually begun to conclude uh, trade agreements with each other, uh, as opposed to states joining in a particular organization. You have two or three regional organizations concluding a trade agreement with each other. You also see uh, uh, efforts of the African Union to actually have a trade agreement of the whole of Africa. But all of these efforts are essentially aimed at complementing each other in that the African Union, as much as it wants economic cooperation, is also realizing that to get to that point where we have a single African market, you need to look at what these regional organizations are doing, some of which have advanced economic cooperation, and then see them as setting the stage or setting uh, uh, setting up the process towards a continental-wide economic organization. So this question's for both of you. And Dr. Chacha, you alluded to it in the first answer about uh, shifting the mindset of European way of thinking. And you can't apply that into Africans' problems because they're co two completely different things. So basically to that point is when you pose the question in your lecture of, quote, how do we explain and evaluate these dynamics of African regional cooperation? 
your response was challenging the Eurocentrism in the study of regional cooperation. So my question to you both, again, as practitioners of the field of international relations, how detrimental can it be to assume that the background conditions of Europe or elsewhere, um, and thus its theories, can be applicable to Africa? I mean, I would say that, I mean, some of these theories that we, we come across in the study of international politics are interesting. Uh, they offer uh, convincing explanations, broadly speaking, of world politics. But then what if your interest is in understanding the politics of a particular region, politics that may have not been affected or impacted in the same way that we see you know, European politics or uh, the politics of, of states in the Northern Hemisphere. And so you may have assumptions that are built on you know, European philosophy, but then to what extent is that useful when you're trying to understand China's behavior right. in the world? And I see that as well, you're coming, you, you, you come into this challenge that you know, you're, you're taking some assumptions that perhaps, generally speaking, can be useful but then when you're looking at peculiarities within particular parts of the world, or you're looking at particular countries that are non-Western, that their whole political system is not based on the Western experience, then you can't really explain that when you're using these theories. Right? You're running into this challenge that what you want to explain doesn't really f uh, fit into the, the narrative of these you know, more or less Eurocentric theories. And so that's why I would say the, the, the challenge arises, I mean, or the detrimental effect of, of applying these, these assumptions, these theoretical assumptions to, to these other non-Western part, parts of the world. Even the most basic assumptions about the very nature of how international relations play out, you have to really revisit the, those initial assumptions. So in the case of Europe, even if we go back to the basic idea of state formation or the formation of you know, modern countries and how we think about that, there are all kinds of theories about this, but the main idea with how European states became so centralized and so strong and so functional, for lack of a better term, was international warfare in Europe, where effectively, if you didn't become strong and become very heavily centralized and be able to do things like extract taxes from your citizens, be able to, to be able to fund a war machine to protect yourself, you weren't going to exist anymore. Your state was going to go away. You were going to be subsumed into someone else. This is radically different than the way state formation played out in much of the rest of the world. where So for most of Africa, for example, you end up having colonization where those very strong centralized states in Europe went elsewhere. We have the scramble for Africa. Almost the entirety of the continent ends up being colonized. And then eventually when we do have independent states come out of Africa, there are artificial creations that didn't go through that same process of really having to develop strong institutions and economies and you know centralized bureaucracies and things like that to be able to survive. And during the colonial period, these were entities that were effectively built for almost exclusively extraction of whatever resources might be there. So whatever politics you might have had locally during the colonial period, it wasn't really built on trying to make this particular polity strong and functional. The idea was to get economic resources out of the place. So at the time of independence, what you're left with are very uncentralized and very weak states that are now being put into an international system where we effectively in the 20th century, we have more of a respect for international borders. You know, this idea that one country is going to invade another country and overtake it or change the border and things like that. 
this became almost sacrosanct, you know, the last few years. Obviously, we, you know, we've been seeing an exception to that in the news. But these countries effectively didn't have to become strong, you know, so they certainly were not equatable to what Europe was dealing with. And I think that ultimately this is important for international relations and things like integration, because one, it does pose a challenge to some major international relations theory. So for example, in realism, you know, realism is a very important theory, obviously, that came out of an observation of at best great power politics, at worst, specifically European politics. And if you look at the very assumptions of it, where it's looking at countries being kind of power maximizers who are afraid of their neighbors because they're uncertain of their attentions and, you know, they could potentially be attacked and things like that. It works under this assumption that countries need to kind of constantly be strengthening themselves or balancing against each other in order to avoid falling victim to another country. Well, in the modern world, and particularly in much of the global South, this doesn't really make any sense. And if you actually look at how these countries do their politics, either domestically or internationally, this isn't how they behave. So in terms of this idea of something like power maximization, you know, Muita and I, we obviously both talk about military coups a lot. A lot of times leaders are specifically avoiding turning their countries into strong military powers because they're afraid that their militaries might turn the barrel of the gun around and point towards the political leadership and take over the country. So we actually see countries intentionally weakening, weakening their armed forces in order for their own purposes of political survival. And unlike the development of European countries, with the current context, both of kind of this infallibility of international borders and in Africa in particular, with this very strong non-intervention norm, countries didn't have to avoid falling victim to being overtaken by another country and annexed by another country or something like that. There were occasional border disputes and things like that. Sure, even an occasional war, but it was really radically different than the European experience. And one of the things that I think is really important about this um, in the context of contemporary integration is that a lot of these countries still are incredibly weak still not very centralized. And ultimately, these are countries that really are going to end up depending on each other in order to be able to really strengthen themselves in the modern world. Dr. Chacha, why did you center the first research project you conducted and presented during the lecture on the public opinion of regional integration in Africa? And not only seeing what opinions they have, but explaining why they have those opinions. So the reason I, I looked at that project was because, uh, first of all, going back to uh, um, one of the, the, the characteristics of post-Cold post War cooperation in Africa is this notion of people-centeredness. And what we mean by that, but more importantly, whether we actually observe that from those who are supposed to be the um, beneficiaries of regional cooperation in Africa. But we don't know much. We don't know much about what the public thinks about cooperation in Africa. So that was one of the primary motivations for, for this project. Another one had to do with uh, trying to examine uh, uh, the extent to which this process of cooperation has actually shaped public attitudes, public opinion. We don't know much about what public opinion is, but then can we look at the process of cooperation in Africa and somehow build an argument to explain why that process shapes what the public thinks about these organizations. And so these two uh, motivations are the ones that, uh, that led me to this, this particular project. If you look at the study of regional cooperation broadly, 
and also uh, uh, how this has been studied from a public opinion perspective, the focus has mainly been on European integration, uh, which you know it, it's an interesting case, quite dy- dynamic, one would say quite successful, and you see a lot of scholarship on this. But then what I was highlighting in the lecture was that we've seen regional cooperation in Africa almost throughout the same period of time, right? Uh, not to the same degree as, say, uh, deeper cooperation uh, that we we observe in Europe, but we've seen cooperation that persists, uh, that uh, is is dynamic in its own way. So, what does the public think about this? Uh, does the public know about it? And and if the public knows about it, if the public has opinions about it, then what explains those opinions? And so, th- these motivations led me to to, to this particular project. Um, uh, which again is is one that's ongoing uh, and and hopefully is one that uh, will result in uh, more attention paid to what the public thinks about uh, regional organizations in in Africa. And I'm kind of piggybacking from a question that I remember from the Q and A once your lecture was over. Mm-hmm. I remember someone asking, "How did you define the public? Like, mm-hmm. who's mm-hmm. part of the public?" So the public here, uh, uh, in in a lot of research on that uses public opinion data, the public is, uh, in a way, everybody. Uh, the idea here is that the survey is representative of the country or the countries that are being studied, and you know there may be flaws in some of the data that we have out there in, in the social sciences, but ideally you have a, a, a data set that has respondents that are from different parts of that country, that are fr- uh, of different ages, uh, gender. Uh, and so you're capturing all these different dynamics that give you an image or a snapshot of, of, of that country. So you, in, in this way, public opinion research is, is aiming at, in a way, uh, 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 being representative of what that particular, you know, the people in that particular country think about certain political, economic, or social issues. Is there any way that the findings from that particular study align or at least influence your individual research? So I do not do direct research on public opinion, but the attitudes of the public absolutely matter for the stuff that I do research on, like military coups. So for example, one of the things that I try to either make assumptions about or theorize about is how do how does someone who might potentially conduct a coup, how do they think about what the reaction might be? You know, and previously we've been speaking about this in terms of how the international community might come in and react to them. They also have to think about how domestic audiences are going to react. Most immediately to them are other folks in the military or pres- presidential guard or something like that going to try to um, kick them out and try to make sure that the previous regime stays in power. But we also have to think about the masses, you know, like the people more generally, because if you do see things like mass protests in the aftermath of a coup, these can themselves actually reverse the coup and force soldiers to go back to the barracks. And we've seen notorious examples of this in recent history. So the role of the masses is absolutely important, both for the um, potential coup plotters themselves, but the attitudes of the public is also going to be very important in regards to how the international community can actually react. And I think one of the things that we've seen in the last few years is, you know, though we've been coming off this assumption that things like democracy promotion and anti-coup norms, we think of these as kind of like inherently good things that everybody kind of naturally agrees that we should get rid of these sorts of things. 
we do start to see potential cracks in this idea in the last few years, particularly in the Sahel region of West Africa, where you actually see mass protest arising, protesting against a group like the Economic Community of West African States for trying to sanction coup-born governments and people actually both actively rallying in support of coup-born military regimes and protesting specifically against those who are attempting to punish coup-born military regimes. Right. You're also seeing, um, if you look at some of the data that have come out, um, which I referenced in the lecture, um, the Afrobarometer, if you track, uh, there's a question that they've asked about whether people would prefer the military to be in power. And as much as those percentages are not high uh, uh, or massive, they've been increasing between you know, when they started asking this question in, in 1999 to, to uh, the, the, the most recent survey. And so you, you're seeing uh, you know, these sentiments uh, by the public, which in a way can, can reflect uh, or can, can, can give us a hint as to whether the efforts of international actors uh, have been enough uh, go far enough to to either change opinions of the public or actually make the public realize that perhaps the armed forces is not you know the 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 ideal way of organizing your your government and if I could piggyback on that um, we to mention that the percentages the percentages themselves might not necessarily appear to be particularly high depending on the country that you're looking at in the Sahel region that I was just alluding to. If you're looking at respondents who agree that it's a very good idea or a somewhat good idea for the army to rule, you will, you will see anywhere between 20% and 30, maybe 35%. So, you know, on a scale of a hundred, this obviously isn't as high as you can get, but this is actually incredibly high, both compared to these countries, earlier histories, but also compared globally. Like these are actually some of the highest places in the world where you are seeing support for army rule. And the places that you do see higher support for army rule are places with um, very interesting histories of militaries intervening in politics and ongoing security challenges such as Pakistan. And, you know, if you look at a country like Pakistan as kind of being the global leader in support for military rule from the masses, if we, you know, trust the survey data, that's not really a model, you know, that we want to be advocating and one thing that's particularly interesting to me when we look at these West African cases, we do see a place like Mali where like 10, 15 years ago, there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of support for army rule. Mali had a coup overthrow a democratically elected leader in 2012. The military took power and then promptly lost around half of the country's territory to an ongoing insurgency. Now, to be clear, the military was struggling before the coup itself and the coup wasn't necessarily directly responsible for what ended up happening with the military's losses against this insurgency after the coup. But we actually saw the military spectacularly fail after seizing power in this coup in 2012. And it ended up resulting in an attempted counter coup that resulted in a lot of deaths. The leader who came into power through the coup was eventually um, injured very badly in assassination attempt. And eventually they got back on track and ended up having a new election. But then we then subsequently see that democratically elected leader removed in a coup. And now we're kind of back to where we were a decade ago, 
with the key difference that, that it seems like the masses are far more supportive of the army actually ruling now than they were a decade ago, which to me is you know, really fascinating considering that we do have this recent precedent that the army is certainly not going to do a better job of governing than what the civilian regimes were doing, whatever their failures might have been. So my next two questions are inspired from the second project you mentioned in your lecture about public attitudes towards democracy promotion in Africa. So my first question is, and this is for both of you, how imperative is having political institutions robust enough to withstand future changes, especially in the context of an electoral system? Like, how important is that? I would say it's important because uh, it ensures that some of these threats to democratic governance uh, don't manifest themselves. Uh, and uh, when, when you think about uh, a historical practice of, of democracy and how that instills in, in, in people confidence in their institutions, in their, in their political institutions, then all of these are factors that uh, make it less likely that uh, uh, these countries will face challenges that undermine democracy. Uh, leaders who or politicians who become you know uh, leaders of that particular country will have less of an incentive to abuse uh, their power because the institutions are are strong enough uh, that that they know that uh, if they do uh, you know if if they go around suppressing the opposition uh, then there are mechanisms that have been set up that will uh, punish them or will punish this kind of kind of behavior without these robust institutions you have you know situations where a leader is is Aware that they can get away with whatever they do, uh, they can go around and and you know, change the rules of the game so that they remain in power, uh, despite the fact that there are term limits. Uh, they can go around suppressing the opposition, uh, give it, despite the fact that they are in a democracy or their country is supposed to be a democracy. And these are actions that leaders would take when institutions in that particular country are not robust, are not strong enough have not had, uh, um, you could say, uh, a history of ensuring that these activities that undermine democracy don't take place or don't go unpunished. And if if that is not in place, or as, as I was making, uh, uh, as the argument I was making in the presentation um, uh, on Tuesday, if, if there's a hint to the public that these institutions, given their history, are not that strong, then we are likely to have people who fear backsliding and perhaps these are the people who will be more likely to welcome uh, external actors um, uh, coming in or, or sending signals to those who are in power that perhaps these are actions that they shouldn't take to undermine democracy. And the role of political institutions and domestic political institutions in particular it can't really be overstated in terms of military coups. Like generally we think of coups, we focus on the folks wearing the uniforms, right? The man on horseback who's going to ultimately overthrow the governments. But a lot of times when militaries intervene, we might see one of two things. They're either directly responding to abuses of power that leaders are actually themselves doing, or they're able to intervene in a situation in which the government's weak, the political institutions are weak, and it might be kind of more predatory behavior. But what's often understated is the role in which civilian actors themselves, even democratically elected civilian leaders, play in actually putting a country on a collision course with the armed forces, and in some cases, perhaps actively encouraging a coup with misbehavior. And the role of institutions as a whole, if you look over the last 
10 years, you know, what we've seen in Africa in kind of a bad way, it's actually been really fascinating because we have seen such wide variation in how institutions have failed. You know, earlier we were talking about, you know, how in the 1990s, there was kind of a lot of optimism where we were coming out of these like dark ages of the Cold War and moving more towards this expectation of democratic governance. And in the 1990s, we saw the adoption of new constitutions, democratic constitutions. We really saw the disappearance of formal military regimes. And we saw constitutions that did have explicit things like checks on executive power and term limits. And a lot of the, a lot of the leaders who specifically adopted term limits were folks who themselves have been in power for a long time. But then after eight years or 10 years or however it long might be, these folks start to get towards the end of these second terms. And we end up having what we call third termism, <clears throat> where all of a sudden various leaders begin to tinker with constitutions and try to do things to both increase the scope of their own powers, but also open the system up to where they can remain in power for a longer period of time. And there's been an incredible range of variation in which leaders have done this. Um, in Ethiopia, for example, we had, you know, effectively the swapping of which position was going to be more powerful for the executive in the country where a leader who had reached his term limits were now going to switch executive power from a president to a prime minister, kind of like what Vladimir Putin had done with Medvedev in Russia. Um, at, in other points, we do have folks specifically getting rid of term limits. At other times, we actually see leaders start to come up on the end of their terms and their term actually ends in at least two, at least two cases in um, recent years. We see leaders' terms actually end where they no longer have an actual mandate to be in charge of the country, but they're still in charge because no election has been in, been held and we haven't seen the rise of, we hadn't seen a subsequent rise of a leader. And there's no clear way to deal with these sorts of cases. And obviously this causes a range of domestic problems. The international community doesn't seem to have a, a really strong grasp on how to deal with those sorts of situations in particular. You know, something like a coup is a very clear violation of constitutional order. These other practices that we might generally think of as a broad range of practices of executive aggrandizement is a term that a lot of folks would use. We really struggle with how to deal with these things, but ultimately a lot of times executive aggrandizement, which a lot of times is either permitted through the existence of weak institutions or weakening institutions or the abuse of institutions. A lot of times it's actually these sorts of failures that end up prompting folks like the military to intervene. And just to use a couple of examples, um, there was a failed coup attempt um, in Burundi, I think in 2015, where the, everyone had foreseen that the leader was in Kurenziza was going to try to get rid of term limits to stay in power. Some folks in the armed forces attempted to remove him to try to actually keep the country um, more in line with its constitution, but the coup failed and it failed spectacularly. And this actually made things a lot worse where in Kurenziza ended up cracking down quite severely on the on the people who had you know kind of risen up against him and in terms of a purge of the armed forces and stacking the armed forces with folks that would be more loyal to him an earlier example in 2010 in niger we had seen a leader mamadou tanja who had gone through these executive aggrandizement processes he had manipulated the constitution where he had more power he had gotten rid of term limits so he would be able to stay in power longer and the military actually removed him in order to try to get the country free from the wrath of the international community, because Tanja had done all these things 
and he had started to be sanctioned by organizations like the Economic Community of West African States. So in a very bizarre way, a coup actually became the solution to get rid of an otherwise intransigent leader who was getting the country sanctioned. So ultimately, strong political institutions are going to be incredibly important for the stability of these countries long term. So you mentioned in your answer right now and in, in, in the lecture, the history of unconstitutional changes and how that um, could signal the fragility of democratic institutions. And of course, that's what you were just talking right now. So I guess my second part to this overall conversation we're having right now is what is the significance of understanding this history and applying it to not only your research, but just examining current trends and phenomenon? I think uh, from, from, from my own research, um, or at least from the project that I presented, I would say that it's significant uh, because, first of all, it's, it's hinting at the strength of institutions in that particular country, but also it, it informs us uh, on what we may be, uh, what we are likely to expect from from institutions in that particular country, and so you have these events in the past, particularly if they are, if they were frequent, shaping the kinds of uh, um, institutions this country is going to have going forward, and in the process influencing uh, what the public thinks about those institutions. And so I would say that the significance here is marked by how, if you have a history of institutions that are willing to condone um, abuse of power, if you have a history of coups, in other words, if your country has faced so many coups in the past, then the chances of coups happening in that country remain high. Uh, it is seen, at least perhaps by some in the arms forces, as one way through which they can uh, either access power or they can... Uh, change power from you know, one person to the other. And if that's the precedence that, precedence that has been set, uh, given this frequency of, of coups, then you, know, you, you end up with a situation where you may have domestic actors, societal actors who want to build democracy, but that may not be enough. That may not be uh, sufficient to ensure that these threats or the, the, the risk of, of these, uh, uh, these activities undermining whatever gains they had made when it comes to democracy, uh, is high. Th that risk remains high. Hence, these actors may, these societal actors may want democracy, but that, their efforts may not be enough. That's why, you, you, uh, as, as I was arguing in, in, in the presentation, that's, that's when you can see the potential of external pressure complementing what domestic actors perhaps want when it comes to democracy, when it comes to uh, are reducing those risks that this previous history has 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 uh, put on them, uh, uh, and perhaps through the pressure from external actors working uh, in collaboration with with what domestic actors want, then we may be able to overcome. We may be able to to, to limit um, these 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 particular risks. And to add to that, it's also important to look beyond a specific political outcome like democratization. So economics, for example, you know, with institutions, we can generally think of institutions of the rules as the rules of the game. And in terms of politics, okay, this determines who gets to be in power, how do they get in power, how long can you stay, and what are the rules that constrain you with the types of things that you can do while you're in power, while you're governing. If this stuff isn't unpredictable, obviously this is a problem for politics, but it's also a very serious problem for economics. And if the rules of the game are unstable, that makes things like investments inherently unstable. 
and you're not necessarily sure if an executive is going to be able to do things like nationalize an industry or maybe arbitrarily implement more taxes on a certain industry. And if those institutions are also contributing to things like political instability, be it military coups or you constantly see mass protests against a government, this is inherently going to create the signal, very strong signal, that you are in fact a risky investment destination. So you might have you know, individuals in your country who might be interested in investing, but they're going to be reluctant to do so because they're not convinced that the institutions are going to hold up and allow your investment to be done safely. But in particularly with, with, with foreign, foreign direct inter, in, investment, there is obviously an incentive to avoid countries where the institutions are seen as weak and the likelihood of political instability very high. And obviously, you would be much more likely to go to an, an investment destination that is going to be more predictable. Dr. Chacha, you concluded your lecture with an image showing regional cooperation organizations in Africa today with a significant amount of countries um, having overlapping memberships. I'm going to ask you the rhetorical question you asked the audience okay. that day. <laughs> is it a good thing or a bad thing to have such large amounts of overlapping memberships? I think it's both. Uh, but you have to ask yourself from the perspective of the organizations and also from the perspective of individual states. From an individual state's perspective, then you are perhaps looking at or pursuing multiple memberships because different organizations have different purposes for you. Uh, and so it benefits you to be a member of many organizations. So perhaps one organization, maybe you call it your primary organization, is good at uh, negotiating agreements with external actors. Uh, it's good at you know, availing this market that attracts investors. Uh, but then another organization may be good at, uh, say, issues that have to do with with development, so development broadly defined here. So it could be, for example, addressing drought, it could be addressing uh, other types of environmental degradation. And so you're also pursuing membership in that organization, right? And so it's benefit, it's it, it's to your benefit to be to maintain memberships in these two organizations. But then from the organization's perspective, so the collective uh, of particular organizations, overlapping memberships is actually undermining what they may want to attain as a block. From from that figure that I showed uh, um, on Tuesday, many of these organizations aim at trade cooperation. They aim to lower tariffs, they aim to eliminate tariffs, some want to be common markets, customs union, etc. To do that, ideally you want the block to move together. So members within that block ought to pursue similar policies aimed at realizing this goal of deeper trade cooperation. But then if some states are also member, members of other organizations that are also pursuing that goal for themselves, then these are two goals that cannot be reconciled. In other words, moving towards deeper trade cooperation in one organization will have an adverse effect on deeper trade cooperation in another organization. And so. If you look at many of these organizations, and this is the challenge that you see the African Union trying to address, 
or, or this trade agreement between uh, the East African community, the Southern African Development Community, and um, the coal market for Eastern and Southern Africa. It's this realization that we all want the same thing for us, but we also have members who are in these different blocks. So how do we go about ensuring that we can attain our, our goals? Why not have a common trade, you know, a common set of trade rules that will facilitate a trade between the three blocks as much as they're pursuing their own uh, um, agendas of deeper trade cooperation? So I would, I would, you know, I would distinguish between what the individual state wants by doing this and what the block wants by not wanting that to be pursued by its members. My final question regarding your lecture Having this roughly 60 or so year history of regional cooperation in Africa, what lessons can be learned from the successes and the failures moving forward for regional unity in Africa? And I would say the, the, probably what can enhance the success of many of these organizations is really living up to this commitment to people-centeredness. I, I think... One of the challenges, one of the reasons why, uh, um, whether it's the Organization uh, for African Unity or the East Africa, the, the previous East African Community, one of the reasons that these organizations either collapsed or were seen as not having done what they could have done in terms of enhancing cooperation in Africa was because they ended up being um, very much elite-driven. In other words, they brought together heads of state, head, heads of government, as of the different governments, uh, but then the people never really felt involved, and and if the people don't feel involved, then these organizations lack legitimacy. People either don't know about them, or people just see them as you know clubs of our leaders. They meet every year, they discuss issue, issues that are supposed to involve us, but then clearly they are not just talking to each other, right? Uh, which doesn't serve the whole agenda of cooperation to benefit Africa. And, you know, Africa here is, you know, it's the people of Africa are the ones who want or who, who should be the beneficiaries. And if we don't live up to people-centeredness, if these organizations don't live up to that idea of people-centeredness, actually implement it, then I think these organizations will end up repeating the same mistakes uh, of the past. My final question for both of you for this podcast um, which has multiple parts. Um, so as I was doing my research about both of your careers, I skimmed through a couple of the articles you've written together. And one of the ones that caught my attention was a journal article titled Failed Coops, Democratization and Authoritarian Entrenchment, Opening Up or Digging In, published in African Affairs in November 2018. And I'm going to quote, a statement from that article, quote, recent studies have suggested that military coups can act as important windows of opportunity for democratization in authoritarian regimes. It is even argued that even failed coup attempts can roughly double the probability that an authoritarian regime democratizes in the next three years. Can you both talk to us a little bit about this recent shift from the traditional view of coups being detrimental to the democratic process and trajectory? And then my second question is, where is the literature now in 2023? And then my third question is, 
what do you see moving forward the future of political life in Africa? Can I start with? Yes, you start. So coups always have been and continue to be a direct threat to democracies. Like that has not changed. This literature that has started to look at coups as a potential window of opportunity for democratization, this is specifically looking at coups in the context of authoritarian regimes. So, you know, ignoring what goes on in democracies, if we're looking at any sort of potentially democratizing effect to the degree that folks are finding that sort of an association with coups, it's being found when we look at authoritarian regimes. And an earlier paper that I had done, which started to get this research agenda going on what are the actual aftermaths of coups, one of the interesting things that we found was that when you did see countries democratize after coups, it was actually in countries that otherwise we would perhaps least expect to democratize, like places where we had had dictators in power for an exceptionally long period of time or governments that were exceptionally undemocratic. So they weren't on the cusp of becoming democratic or anything like that. So in short, where you did see democratic transitions after coups, um, these tended to occur in places that were otherwise the least likely places where you would otherwise see democratization. Now, in terms of the broader effect of coups potentially being associated with a trend towards democratization, one thing I want to be very clear about is it's not the coup itself. Like the coup itself is not inherently democratic, even if undertaken against an authoritarian regime. And even if the coup leaders themselves have the absolute best intentions and want to do things like remove a long ensconced dictator from power to specifically open up the political process. Um, even if that is their intention, a lot of times coups quickly get out of control. And in the, the aftermath of coups, oftentimes it is not the coup leaders themselves who ultimately end up determining what happens, what happens politically long-term. So in a lot of these cases where we do see post-coup democratization and perhaps the most famous of it, of these is uh, Portugal with the coup in 1974. It was the coup against Europe's longest ensconced dictatorship. And not only did Portugal successfully democratize within three years or so, but that case and the precedent set by that case is, is often attributed as ushering in what's referred to as democracy's third wave, where you suddenly saw a lot of other authoritarian regimes start to democratize both in Europe and elsewhere. But it was entirely by accident. Um, the folks that led the coup, they wanted to change some policies that the government was, was undertaking, particularly having to do with colonial wars in Africa. But democracy wasn't even necessarily something on their radar. And it was ultimately subsequent things that happened after the coup, including the actions of the masses rising up and protesting and things like that, um, that ultimately led the country down a path towards democratization. So one of the things that Muita and I are you know, particularly interested in trying to figure out about these post-coup situations is what actually does push these countries towards what we would think is a better path and towards civilian rule and towards democratic rule and hopefully towards stable democratic rule. And this is one of the questions that we're trying to ask. And it gets at one of your questions, you know, kind of like what happened, you know, what's next, where's this stuff going to go? Um, though we almost invariably would generally think of something like a military coup is inherently undemocratic. 
The reality is, is that a fair number of countries do actually democratize after military coups. So I think a very important thing for us to figure out is why does that happen? What kind of conditions allow that to happen? What sorts of actors need to be involved for that to happen? And what do they need to do for that to happen? And if we start to understand these post-coup processes, then we might be able to do things like inform policy to try to better these post-coup situations where international institutions like the African Union or Economic Community West African States and so forth might actually have better informed policies to be able to navigate post-coup scenarios. Right, right. Uh, I mean, to, to pick on that, uh, I would say that there's been a growing interest in understanding um, the role of international actors. I think there's, there's uh, some work that, that Jonathan has done that investigates uh, these particular uh, issues. In one way, trying to understand whether um, international uh, organizations such as the African Union have actually had an impact on you know, uh, um, this decline in the number of coups. Uh, uh, and what we are doing right now, one of the projects that we're working on is to look at exactly what the African Union has done uh, following coups. Because the African Union has its own, you know, uh, um, rules. But then, what has it? How has it implemented those rules when it came to coups that have happened since uh, uh, the two thousands? And I would say that this is where the the literature is going towards uh, trying to understand exactly what these organizations are doing, whether they are actually reacting in the way that they claim uh, or they, they envision in in their own uh, uh, policies, in their own in their own rules. Uh, in terms of what lessons you can learn from this, I, mean, I would say um, from this whole re literature uh, and, and this whole research, we shouldn't be quick to conclude that uh, coups are uh, inherently going to be opening windows for democracy or, or they're going to be opening windows for further uh, um, autocratic rule. Uh, we need to dig deeper and understand the context. Uh, I mean, for example, some of the examples that I, I referenced in, in the lecture uh, had to do with coups that happened to be uh, popular. I think there was an image, uh, I'm not sure if I, I showed this image in the, in the lecture, but uh, there was a coup in Mali uh, right around when the pandemic was starting. The Economic Community of West African States sanctioned the leaders of that coup. The leaders of that coup rallied people against these sanctions that had been imposed by these regional organizations. And so, in a way, this was a coup that was popular. Uh, people didn't want the incumbent to remain in power. So how do we approach this, this, this sort of you know, situations, these sort of outcomes, where a coup in itself is not democratic, but then the public wanted that coup because they had no other option, right? And perhaps one bigger lesson here would be that regional organizations like the African Union ought to do more in terms of enhancing democracy prior to these uh, explicit threats to democracy that we see, such as coups. If they had gone in or if they had sent a signal that they are actually not happy with the actions of the incumbent, when the incumbent was either shooting at protesters uh, or the incumbent was suppressing the opposition, or the incumbent was postponing elections, then perhaps the public will see that as a way in which their country's democracy is being uh, guaranteed by by these regional organizations. But the organization didn't do that. It steps in 
after the fact, after the coup, when people are already frustrated and they see the coup as the only way out. So unless you you enhance these mechanisms uh, within regional organizations, where they're actually living up to promoting democracy, and not just being anti-coup, then we, we, we won't see these organizations having this impact that they, they want to have on on uh, democracy promotion in Africa or, or elsewhere in the world. And I know you both of you alluded to some of the current works you're you're working on. Any other future projects you are currently up to, either together or individually? Uh, I mean, there's there's this project on, on the African Union and and uh, um, its reactions. Uh, there's uh, another project I don't think we've talked too much about. We want to understand public support for military rule, uh, how it has changed over time. Um, and uh, there's one project that uh, hopefully we'll be able to collaborate that wants to document uh, responses to, to coups, uh, international actors' responses to, to coups. I'm not sure if, if I've covered... Yeah, in terms of collaborative stuff, right, sure. Right. And um, one thing that I will mention that I'm also involved with is trying to use available data and trying to get data as recent as possible, almost in real time, and combining the lessons of the work that folks like Muida and I are working on and combining it with uh, incredibly large in stuff, um, and including machine learning to try to predict when and where these sorts of things might occur. You know, So I've been involved in this project called KuCast that I'm trying to I'm currently revive it had been dormant for a while, but I'm updating data and I'm reviving it. Um, but this will give monthly predictions about when and where coups might occur and allow us to identify the places that might be most at risk for these sorts of behaviors. And in the past, you know, when we have had estimates from it, it has been incredibly accurate. Now, I wouldn't say that we would necessarily predict any one specific coup, but when coups do occur, it is precisely where the data tell us that we would expect one to occur at that particular point in time. So that's something that I'm particularly excited about and trying to get that back online. Well, those are all the questions I have today for both of you. Again, congratulations on the lecture you gave. It was very interesting, and I'm glad I was able to take an hour or so to talk with you and also um, you, Dr. Powell, about this. So thank you, Dr. Chacha. Thank you, Dr. Powell. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed listening to Dr. Chachas and Dr. Powell's dynamic duo and their perspectives on the broader themes and topics we talked about, regional cooperation, coups in the international arena in Africa specifically, and so much more that they discussed throughout the conversation. I definitely enjoyed it. I hope you all enjoyed it as well. Just a fun little note that I just want to mention. This is the second uh professor that I've interviewed from the University of Birmingham at, in the United Kingdom. The first one was obviously Dr. Frank Euketer. Completely different subjects, but just an interesting coincidence that I just wanted to note. So that's pretty cool. So shout out to the University of Birmingham is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Please subscribe to this feed of Knight's History Cast wherever you listen your podcast. It feels great saying that um, because now it's officially on all platforms that everyone listens to podcasts. So it feels great to say that. But yeah, please, please, please stay tuned to Night's History Cast. I'm Sebastian Garcia. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Night's History Cast. I greatly appreciate it, and I will see you all on the next one. Thank you, everybody.